What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, a big parade of retail earnings on the way. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hetger here in London, where we're asking, where are all the women money managers? Speaking to famed investor Helena Morrissey. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. More than nine out of 10 people in China are planning to travel in the coming weeks. Where are they going and who stands to benefit? That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with a flood of earnings reports about to come out from some of the nation's biggest retailers. And joining me now to give us some insight into what to expect and what it all means for the economy, Bloomberg retail reporter Brendan Case. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, with inflation still rising, borrowing rates high and expected to move even higher, it has been a tough time for consumers and for retailers. And last week, boy, we got some pretty disappointing outlooks for the year ahead from two retail giants, both Dow components. So, Brendan, let's start with Walmart, the world's largest retailer. And Brendan, Walmart CFO John Rainey told us this past week that value proposition and convenience, as he calls it, is something consumers are liking. But, and it's a big but... There's a lot of macro uncertainty as we as we look across the, the consumers uh, across the globe, but certainly here in the U.S., uh, balance sheets are getting thinner. You're seeing savings rates decline, and we really haven't been in a position where we've seen the Fed tighten at this rate. And so as we look forward and, and give guidance for the full year, we're adopting a cautious outlook, and we want to make sure that we're responsive to whatever environment that we're going to find yeah. ourselves in. So, Brendan, if Walmart is being cautious, as is Home Depot, the other big retailer that reported last week, do other retailers share this caution and broader concerns about the economy right now, the ones that Rainey is talking about? Yes, they really do, Tom. And just to hear that from Walmart, you know, if you think about the broad trends, the big picture out there is that if you're in retail, you want to be selling at very, you know, the lowest possible prices and selling basic goods right now. Walmart you know, has a reputation for doing both. And even it's taking such a cautious tone. When you think about some of the companies about to report, Target, Kohl's, Macy's, you're talking a lot more about discretionary items. And I think we'll probably hear, you know, a similar tone of caution for their outlooks this year. Now, on another note, Miller Drexler, he's CEO and proprietor of clothing retailer Alex Mill, told us, Consumers are stressed by inflation and higher prices, and despite the unemployment rate at a more than 50-year low right now, people should worry that the robust labor market is starting to change. Here's another monkey wrench. A lot more jobs may be at risk. Let's hear from Drexler now. Uh, They have jobs, but I think the huge amount of layoffs 
and the publicity they get uh, has to have people worried about their job security. And there's so many unknowns going on in the world today, uh, you know, internationally in America. All right. So, Brendan, is this another big problem that's going to weigh on retailers, the ones, you know, that we're expecting to hear from this coming week? Time will tell. I think from the retailer's perspective, that's more of kind of a good news, bad news kind of thing. You know, the bad news is that certainly we've heard a lot of layoff announcements from tech companies, banks, some of the most powerful companies in the economy. Uh, It looks a little different from the retailer's perspective because, you know, employment is still very high. Uh, You know, people have jobs and wages are going up both Walmart and Home Depot over the last few weeks have said they're going to be raising wages, which is sort of a signal that they're having trouble hiring people at their at their current wages uh, and, and that they need to be boosting them just to be able to fill the jobs they have. Uh, now, you know, if the Fed keeps tightening, is is the economy going to get to a situation where overall unemployment starts to, to rise? People start losing jobs, you know, in across different industries. Time will tell. If that happens, that's going to be a whole new ball game for the retailers. All right, Brendan. Now, there's also the post-pandemic reopening, a lot of pent-up demand for travel, for dining out, for experiential spending on concerts, sporting events, the like. None of that comes cheaply. That means all those things are also competing with retailers for our money. Now, at the same time, you of course, you need to buy clothes. You have to eat. You have to go out every now and again. So where does this leave retailers right now, given that like we just heard Drexler say, people are worried. You know, the the retailers last year, been, they started struggling with this shift that you're talking about last year. And in fact, it happened a lot more quickly than they were expecting. The effect was that companies like Walmart, Target, they ended up with a whole lot more inventory than they thought they were going to need. Um, it, you know, you're talking about home goods, you're talking about kitchen appliances, that stuff was just, you know, stacking up in their warehouses. And they ended up having to, you know, liquidate it, mark it down, uh, you know, pretty heavy discounts. That took a big toll on profits last year. And this year, it's a pretty similar outlook. Now, well, let's uh, dig a little deeper into some of the names that are reporting. Uh, and some of them have navigated the pandemic better than others. Some of them have bounced back better than others. But let's talk uh, about some of the biggies. We'll start with the discounters, Dollar Tree, Dollar General. I mean, these stores uh, have seen tremendous ups, tremendous downs. Where do they stand right now? Yeah, so Dollar Tree is going to be reporting next week. And that's going to be an interesting test because just on on February uh, 23rd, uh, Dollar General issued a profit warning. It said it got hit pretty bad from the impact of the the winter storms that we had right before Christmas. Uh, it also came out with a pretty underwhelming outlook for this year. Um, and I, you know, one thing that they flagged was increased interest expense. But kind of lurking in the background there is the concern that maybe lower income consumers which is kind of their bread and butter, you know, maybe those people are really starting to, you know, run out of gas in terms of their spending ability. They're getting squeezed by whole range of costs. And, you know, are they going to be able to keep spending the way they've been spending for companies like Dollar Tree and Dollar General to, you know, continue making the the, 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 the gains that they have been in terms of sales? That's a, that's a big question going into this, this, these earnings reports. 
Let, let's talk about now the middle income, the targets, the coals. How do they stand? So Target is going to be the first one to report. They, they go on, on Tuesday, and they actually have a whole investor day planned as well. So they're going to be getting into the details of their, of their outlook for this year. And that's going to be really interesting. You know, Target does sell a lot of food and basic goods, um, but the proportion of those goods as, as, as in terms of their total sales is much smaller than Walmart. And Target, you know, by contrast, is quite a bit stronger than Walmart in terms of the percentage of discretionary items it sells. And so its outlook is going to tell us a lot about what, by all accounts, is a very well-managed retailer. What does a company like that see in terms of their demand trends for this year after being kind of upended last year? And uh, speaking of upended, Kohl's, a competitor in a lot of ways to Target, how does it look for Kohl's? Yeah, see, and there again, with Kohl's, with Macy's, you're talking about all of the discretionary exposure that Target has, but with much less of the, the kind of basic essentials that, that Target also sells. So I think if you're looking at a company like Kohl's, you're looking at Macy's, you're talking about a company that is trying to convince customers that, you know, they should buy stuff. Do they really need it? Um, you know, people's definition varies. You can't put off buying clothes forever. Uh, but th- that's a real question mark. And I think there's a lot of concern about whether the outlook for those companies is going to be quite weak this year as consumers continue to struggle with inflation and just try to, you know, cut back on all of their non-essential spending. And speaking of non-essential, let's talk warehouse clubs. Now, we heard from Walmart, and of course, they own Sam's. But this week, we hear from Costco, the biggie, and and after that, BJ's. They have really uh, had to be nimble and navigate through the pandemic. What's the outlook on Costco, the biggie? So Costco has been a big winner during the pandemic. Uh, This is a company with a clientele that skews higher income, and it's a company with a reputation for selling very competitively priced goods. It also sells a lot of food. And so it's getting people in the door with food sales. And once they're in the door, you know, a lot of them, especially those higher income levels, maybe have a little more money to spend, they're finding a lot more to buy in Costco than they did before. And so Costco's comparable sales had a little dip in November. There was a lot of concern that that was, that was a signal of a, of a big slowdown. But since then, December, January have been quite good for Costco. We'll find out more about their outlook when they report earnings. Uh, but by all accounts, they've been a big winner from the pandemic. And it would be a surprise if they come in with a particularly weak outlook. So that'll, that'll be a big watch item. Well, Brendan, that is a lot to digest, and I want to thank you. That's Bloomberg retail reporter Brendan Case. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we go to London to learn about veteran investor Helena Morrissey and how she is setting out to tackle the lack of female fund managers in the UK. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, a look at some of the challenges the Biden administration is facing right now. But first, we go to London and Bloomberg Daybreak host Caroline Hepker to learn more about veteran investor Helena Morrissey and how she's setting out to tackle the lack of female fund managers in the UK. Caroline? Gender diversity efforts here in the UK have stalled. The proportion of female money managers is stuck at 12%. That, according to CityWire's Alpha Female Report for 2022. Helena Morrissey is the chair of the Diversity Project. She is hoping to change that with a new pathway programme, training 60 women from 33 companies to take their top jobs in money management. Now, I sat down with Morrissey to discuss the issue and firstly, just why the numbers are still so low for women at the top of finance. It's quite a mystery, to be honest, because as my own career suggests, you know, it's a great career for anybody who wants to be measured on results. I just spoke at a law firm where the women were saying, you know, why there's so few few female fund managers. And I said, well, it's it's particularly a mystery when I'm talking to you, where you've got 50 percent plus lawyers at the intake level anyway. And fund managers, you know, we've stayed very, very um, low. It's not really moved for the seven or eight years since people collected the data. I do think there's an image problem that um, people look and they think, oh, fund management's not for me. It'll be very isolated to be a woman. Um, It's kind of macho environment. And some of this is not really true. And we've got to get out more and explain that actually fund management is a great career. You know, if you want to be judged on your your ultimate results, if you like... um, an analyst, you know, analysis, it, that's great for lots of women love analysing companies and things. So we've got to just get out and tell the story. I think that's really interesting because, I mean, surely of all the industries, the finance industry, with all of its metrics, would be the most meritocratic, one might think, that you would actually find the industry very obsessed with facts and figures and data that they, we would promote, um, you know, for performance. Well, exactly. I mean, I remember when I was, um, you know, I have a lot of children and when I'd come back from maternity leave, you know, if I still had great performance numbers, then no one really could criticise. I mean, um, obviously, I was investing for the long term as well. I didn't always have great numbers, of course, but um, that's not possible if you run money for many years. But it was a great um, testament to one's, um, you know, ability to have performance data that was completely indisputable, just completely objective. Do you still meet men? I know that you must meet so many people in the City of London. Do you still meet men in the City of London who don't 
believe that, who question whether women are as good at managing money as men? Well, I don't think anyone would ever admit it these days. Um, and I, and I think there is still, though, a bit of a sort of cultural impediment as well. Um, I think men, many men now, and especially in our industry, really are just as frustrated as the women that we're not seeing more progress on this. So there are great allies. But I do also know that some people think this is, you know, irrelevant. You know, it's all about, um, you know, they just don't see it, that actually women might actually bring something new to the table, that we might add something. And in fact, the data does, does suggest that mixed gender teams are the best performing. I don't think that's any great shock to anybody, really. We bring different things to the table. Um, so I'm afraid, yes, one or two, I don't think dinosaurs anymore, but certainly pockets where you're like, oh, I don't really think they're on board with this idea. Yeah, because certainly the story in private equity, for example, is that the case is still very much having to be made, you know, to invest in women-led businesses, you know, the, the, the decision makers about where the money is allocated is, is often very skewed. And so, you know, that, that case is, yeah, we think of it as being old fashioned, but it's might not be. And I'm at this stage thinking, let's not put a business case, because obviously we've had business cases going back decades now. You know, McKinsey did a great business case on why it would be better to have more women on boards than not to have any, showing the financial impact. I think we now have to make a personal case. You know, actually say, your team will be better, your business will be better, you'll have more uh, connection with your clients. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a motive case. I'm actually one of win over hearts and minds now because I see again, I see people saying, oh sure, we'd love to have more women, but not actually doing things, for example, managing people inclusively, um, sort of assuming everybody's got the same sort of lives. Um, and we need to just shake that up completely, I think, and say, actually it's in your interest to, to encourage more women into the industry and to stay. I think that's really interesting that you talk about winning over hearts and minds because this project to me, feels much more muscular. This feels like getting results on the ground. Mm. It feels like a more muscular diversity project than we've seen before, which has been talk, maybe top down. Mm. This is very much bottom up. It is. I mean, we have a great advisory council, which is CEO level, and you know, we need their leadership as well. We need them to say, actually, this is more than peripheral to our business. This is important. We need the regulators to be really pushing this agenda as well and saying, actually, it's important around conduct, around what it means to be a great you know, person in the finance industry, about making sure our reputation sells up. But we do need bottom up. And what we've seen at the Diversity Project, and we now have 15 different work streams, our most recent is the 50 plus group. Um, not that I'm behind that, even though it suits me to have that. But um, we have these groups that are, are really led by the underrepresented people. Um, so, you know, the talk about black group is led mainly by black people. Now, I, I think then you get the passion, you get the absolute drive, you get absolute determination. Um, but we can't do it alone. People, you know, I learned from the 30% Club experience, that was an initiative to create you know, better gender balance on boards, at least 30% women. We only made headway when we involved men in that. Um, and so we do need to be, I love your expression, Caroline, muscular, because you know, it should feel very robust. It should be like, a, you've got a business objective here. Let's improve diversity of talent. Let's make sure that um, people are included when they join, if they're diverse, and let's achieve better results for our clients. That's a very business-oriented approach. But yeah, it needs a bit of everybody involvement. Nuts and bolts, um, you mentioned I, differing reports, um, so I'll clarify, it's either 32 or 33 or 34 companies that are taking part. 33 this year in okay, the end. 33, <laughs> got it clear. Is it the biggest fund managers? Is it the big 
players mm. or are they smaller companies? It's actually at all sizes and there isn't really a theme. So first out the gates, I want to give them credit where it's due with Schroeder's. So Peter Harrison, CEO of Schroeder, Schroeder's got in touch with me the day I just dropped an email to the advisory council saying we've got this idea of a pathway program, female fund managers, um, just a very targeted intervention. He wrote within a minute, I think, back saying, that yes, we need this. And the numbers are quite, quite remarkable. I mean, currently in the UK, it's estimated fewer than 200 women, mm. female fund managers in Britain as a whole. If you've got 60 people on the programme, you know, that's very, very sizable. Do you have targets specifically for the number of women that you would like to see become senior fund managers as a result of this? So yes, I'm going to take the word senior to mean you're a named fund manager on an account. And that's sometimes where the confusion lies because people think, oh, I'm part of a fund management team. I've got the job description fund manager, but I'm not named on an account. And that's the prestigious role. Um, you've just summarized it, Karen. I mean, 60 women, they're not all going to make it, presumably. But if we run this program three or four years, um, we could easily double the proportion of female fund managers. I mean, that's assuming we take all the jobs, which might not be quite plausible. But you know, if you add 60 to the numerator and the denominators, roughly three and a half percent increasing. So this is where I'm really excited about what the Pathway Programme can do. This is not just sort of, you know, whistling in the dark or having some sort of vague hope. This is saying, we'll put this number of women through it and we'll make sure that they get fund management roles. So Helena Morrissey there speaking to me at Bloomberg headquarters here in London. She's the chair of the Diversity Project, uh, talking about her Pathway Programme initiative. If it is successful, it could, in just three years, double the number of female fund managers in Britain. I'm Carolyn Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, are things getting even dicier for President Biden internationally? I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Russia's invasion of Ukraine will continue to be in sharp focus this coming week with a state visit to the White House by Germany's Chancellor. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington, our sound on host, Joe Matthew. Tom, thanks. It's a very high-profile visit, and the timing of Olaf Scholz's trip is particularly important. Joining us now to talk about a Bloomberg White House reporter, Josh Wingrove. Josh, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is an important visit, but I want to back up to kind of set the, the foundation for why it's even happening. As President Biden returns from his trip to Ukraine, marking the one-year uh, anniversary, the first anniversary of this war effort. How important was it for him to actually show up in person for this occasion? Yeah, a big surprise trip. You know, they've sort of been suggesting he might not even be able to go. The security mm-hmm. be too brutal. So he sort of popped up there out of nowhere. Uh, you know, a big show of support for Ukraine as well as for the president, uh, Mr. Zelensky. And, you know, Biden seemed, you know, thrilled, <laughs> candidly, to be able to get there. And then he went for his previously planned trip to Poland where he gave a speech trying to hold together solidarity. You know, Mm -hmm. what is clear is that Joe Biden is trying to head off sort of weakening knees or fatigue among NATO and the West more broadly uh, when it comes to supporting Ukraine uh, in this fight. And he sort of warned in that Poland speech, like, hey, this is not going to be over tomorrow. You know, we are going to have to dig in here for the long haul because it looks like Vladimir Putin is digging in for the long haul. So he's just trying to sort of hold it together and it was sort of a very momentous occasion and you know the the G7 on Friday spoke uh, about this as well so the big question will be sort of like what next will come in terms of support. And I think that's the context for Chancellor Schultz's mm-hmm. visit uh, mm-hmm. to Washington in the, in the coming week here. Secretary of State Antony Blinken this week says Ukraine will win this. Putin's first objective was to erase Ukraine from the map, to erase its identity, to absorb it into Russia. That has failed and will never succeed. Now, there's a fierce battle going on for the territory that Russia has seized. Ukraine's gotten about 50% of what Russia's taken since last February. In order for Ukraine to win the war, the U.S. needs Germany's support. This next visit, as we mentioned, Olaf Scholz this week, uh, will be critically important. Is it? Is it all about Ukraine? It seems to be pretty heavily about Ukraine. It, White House hasn't given us full rundown yet, but it, you know, the, Germany and the U.S. have been sort of the two-pronged head of the question of what arms and what types of arms you give to Ukraine. And remember, go back a year, uh, or even a little less than a year, and there were a lot of nerves in the West about if we give this type of tank, for instance, Mm -hmm. or this type of weapon, or this type of missile, will that be seen as escalatory unnecessarily? Will Putin seize on that and use it as cover fire to uh, escalate even further? So instead, they've tried to just do a slow boil, you know, mm-hmm. slowly adding different types of stuff. Uh, and now the the crossroads that they're at is the question of fighter jets. When yes, President right. Biden was in Europe, he, you know, faced calls and protests demanding F-16 jets or asking for them, I guess I should say. And this is a big question right now. So I think that'll hang in the air. The Germans also have had similar concerns about being too escalatory uh, when, it, when it comes to this stuff. 
the other stuff is just more basic blocking and tackling, Joe, where, like, in terms of ammunition. The mm-hmm. U.S. is, like, concerned that uh, they, they don't want to leave the Ukrainians with weapons that don't have anything to shoot out of them. Yeah, right. uh, and, you know, I think we're starting to get to a place where the U.S. military, uh, like, industrial production lines are starting to raise questions about, uh, you know, what, what, do, what can we produce? What do other allies have in their stocks? Have we emptied the cupboard? And if we've emptied the cupboard, are we making enough stuff you know, to, to start rolling off lines to, right. keep, to keep the Ukrainians armed. So I think we're getting into a little bit of that sphere. It is less flashy mm-hmm. than, okay, we're going to give tanks for the first time, which, of course, the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Germany agreed to do recently. Or we may or may not give fighter jets for the first time. But it's just as important. And I think, uh, I think it's fair to expect that that's going to be a big part of that conversation between the president and chancellor. Dmitry Kuleba, the uh, Ukrainian minister of foreign affairs, talked about the list the wish list that you're referring to. Ammunition, tanks, long-range missiles, planes. These are the most wanted weapons on the list. The most wanted weapons on the list. Of course, they're going to take whatever they can get. And by the way, they've been asking for fighter jets for the better part of a year, right? We were talking about MiG-29s potentially at the beginning of this. They haven't gotten them. Tanks may be rolling. uh, But you wonder at this point... uh, if that's ever going to happen, or is it inevitable? And that we've seen this conversation where we kind of first start by saying no, then the, then we say, well, that wouldn't be effective, and then we end up giving them exactly what they're asking for. Right, right. It's like a parent who doesn't want to give a PlayStation <laughs> kind of. to their kid, right? Yeah, it's like, right. no, no, may wait till you're eight, wait till you're ten. <laughs> no, it's, it does feel like the the dial has moved steadily, and so the question is, will Joe Biden stop moving the dial? Mm-hmm. And he's been pretty categorical. He's not been saying. I don't know, but F-16s, maybe, you know, we're going to have conversations with our allies. He's been saying, no, we're not going to give F-16s. So he has not softened his position or left himself elbow room to do a quick 180 Mm -hmm. here. So if planes do arrive, the signals are that it won't be soon. Now, that said, there are lots of people calling for it. Allies might change their mind. Other countries might change their mind. And calling for training. You know, if you don't want to give them the jets, at least train them in case they get the jets. Right, right, which is a big part of the equation as well. And in particular, will that training be done likely outside of Ukraine? uh, So it gets a little logistically tricky. What's the real worry, though, that Putin says, fighter jets, how dare you, let's start attacking Americans? Or the potential for, for creep that, you know, hey, once we go in the air, borders start to mean less... What happens if somebody gets shot down over Poland or, God forbid, missiles go in the wrong direction? Is that more of the concern? Which we almost had a case of we sure last did. fall, uh, which was it turned out to be a defensive missile that had landed in Poland mm-hmm. but got everyone's uh, hackles up there. You know, I, I think that they are just worried that Putin would seize on it as, like, rhetorically. You know, uh, as Biden has been very, very clear and left no wiggle room on U.S. boots mm. on the ground mm-hmm. in Ukraine. No one is talking about that right now. But U.S. equipment being provided to the Ukrainians for the Ukrainians to fly, it's, you know, if, if that is shot down, you lose the plane, a Ukrainian pilot would die, but it wouldn't necessarily trigger a crisis where American soldiers are dying and now Biden is in a politically tricky position. Right. It would, though, trigger a crisis if Joe, if, if Joe Biden faces a situation where Vladimir Putin says, Okay, this is now a bridge too far. Now they're flying right. your fighter jets. They're firing your missiles. They're firing your not so much a proxy war anymore. Tanks. I mean, how far are you willing to go here? Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm I now consider this mm-hmm. uh, U.S. involvement. So they, that is why they're sort of st- tiptoeing down the hallway, trying to find the board that doesn't creak. Wow, great line. Um, when Olaf Schultz is here, is it a, is this a thank you for cooperating, or actually 
uh, Mr. Chancellor, we need a lot more from you. What's the conversation? I think it's a thank you. Joe okay. Biden has been pretty quick to defend Germany. There have been other countries that think that Germany has been a little soft on the hard military mm-hmm. support. They're, they've been more in the sort of sphere of financial support and that kind of stuff. Uh, Biden has really headed that off. He's really, frankly, moved to save face for Germany. Uh, because I think Biden is of the mind that every country is going to be able to do what they're going to be able to do subject to their own domestic political concerns, right? Mm -hmm. So just like he doesn't want Germany finger-wagging America about what it or will not do, Biden has really stopped short of doing that. So I think it'll be a love-in, more or less. I mean, they are really in lockstep on a lot of these issues Mm -hmm. to the extent that there are disagreements. They're, you know... Show of solidarity. Right, full show of solidarity. So we'll, we'll see more and more and more and more of that. Remember, in the background of this... It wasn't too long ago we were talking about fuel crises in Europe, and yeah. we still have lots of pressures in that regard. We could hear talk about that as well. There's questions about whether the U.S. can continue to uh, sort of backfill mm-hmm. uh, uh, Russian uh, fossil fuels for Europe and for Germany in particular, and the infrastructure needed to do that. It's so complicated because, of course, the U.S. doesn't build you know, <laughs> LNG terminals or export yeah. terminals, for instance, <laughs> right. because Joe Biden tells them to. You know, So uh-huh. it's very complicated, but the, that, that, that energy side of it is going to be a big one as well, in part because Republicans will raise it. They want America to be sort of an energy superpower for Europe. Mm-hmm. Biden has been sort of trapped within this coalition of the Democratic Party where he kind of wants to you know, keep gas prices low and help Europe keep the lights on, but also not be looking to go drill, baby drill, you know. Mm-hmm. Bloomberg White House reporter Josh Wingrove with us on Daybreak Weekend. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Tom, back to you. Thanks, Joe. Bloomberg's Joe Matthew, host of Sound On, reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On live weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m., right here on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, travel and leisure picking up in Asia as people in China start to get out of the house again as pandemic measures ease up. And that means opportunities for the airlines, but also some headaches. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. 
The lust for travel is picking up as pandemic measures ease in Asia. But there are still some hurdles and some regions in Asia will benefit more than others. For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague, Doug Krisner. Tom, Asian airports are starting to see a big lift in traffic. That's partly because Chinese travelers are now on the move, with the country having finally opened up. But travel from many other countries in the region is also on the rise. And to break it down a little, a survey by Bloomberg Intelligence shows Japan Airport Terminal likely to benefit the most, especially Kansai. South Korea's Incheon Airport is also expected to be very busy. Those two are expected to capture the bigger share of China's traffic than pre-pandemic levels. In terms of demand, the BI survey suggests that 92% of residents in China plan to take at least one trip over the next three months. And what airlines would likely benefit the most? China's three biggest airlines are certainly among them, along with Korean Air and ANA. They all could receive a boost. Joining us now is Danny Lee, a Bloomberg reporter on Asia Transport. But I want to cover first some of the red tape issues, like uh, capacity for the airlines. That's been a big problem. Landing rights and even things like visas. How much will that set back uh, this this whole boom really moving? Well, borders are opening up at a whole range of different times. No one really expected China to open up. So airlines have to plan and prepare. Authorities have to plan and prepare. If you're an airline in particular, you need to make sure you have the staff. You need to make sure you have the planes ready. Nothing's going to go on at a flick of a switch. That's a very interesting point because during the pandemic, tens of thousands of pilots, flight crew, ground workers, back office personnel, they lost their jobs. How easy has it been for these major carriers to staff up? It's been a real problem. And in Hong Kong, Cathay Pacific, the city's main airline, is waiting two, two and a quarter years to see full recovery. They lost a lot of staff over COVID and they've introduced pay cuts, permanent pay cuts, and that has decreased the interest of people willing to rejoin the industry overall because they know they can earn money at a much higher price elsewhere and especially during the cost of living. And we've seen airports in Europe, in the US who've struggled to staff up over last summer. We've seen chaos at immigration, at uh, baggage and at customs because there are just not enough staff ultimately. So is the ranking in terms of demand, the ranking for outbound trips for Chinese people, is it North Asia first and then Southeast Asia and then Europe and maybe even after that, the U.S.? Yeah, that's right. It's much easier for Chinese tourists to go close to home. North Asia was always very popular with Chinese outbound travelers, Southeast Asia equally too. Mm. But there's also the question of cost. Chinese consumers have been really hit hard over the past three years through COVID. So if you're wanting to take a trip to Europe, to the US, it's very expensive right now. And whereas there's a lot more uh, capacity, as in more seats available for shorter regional flights. So that makes it easier for Chinese tourists to plan and book appropriately. But also you are having to deal with, in the US and Europe, lots more red tape, Mm. shall we say, visas, documentation. So it's not very straightforward for this recovery to be broad spread. It's always going to be close to home, North Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, rather. One of our colleagues was speaking with June Beilu of uh, Tribeca Investment Partners, and she was quoted as saying Asian airlines are going to go through the roof 
aviation is investable again. Do we have a sense of the profits that carriers are going to deliver in, in 2023? Not yet, but we are seeing signs in 2022 that 2022 was a very good year for airlines. For example, Singapore Airlines, they saw record revenue and that was double the same period last year. Danny, thanks so much for joining us with your insights. Danny Lee, Bloomberg reporter on Asia Transport. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian and Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.